Hello and welcome to the Surgical Spirit Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Haider Al-Hakim, the Third Eye Doctor. Pull up a chair and get ready for some candid and uncompromising discussion with experts, innovators, agitators, and influential people from every corner of health and well-being. From inside the hospital to at home in the kitchen, we're leaving no stone unturned in our quest to uncover the secrets of healthier, happier, more successful, and less stressful lives. Thank you so much for joining us, and without further ado, let's meet this episode's guest. It's me, Dr. Haida Al-Hakim, the Third Eye Doctor, and it's a real pleasure to have not just one, but two podcast hosts. Please introduce yourselves. I'm Dr. Bolivios from A Doctor's View podcast. Uh, I'm Shan from Enduring Health. And also we have Dr. Sahel, who's been on my podcast recently, talking about some really interesting topics. And I thought we'd kind of get the ball rolling. You know, I mean, this is something that we talk about a lot, racism in, in the NHS. So do we have any experience of racism in the NHS? That's- Shan, Shan. Gosh, we're jumping straight into it, yeah, the hard-hitting stuff. Racism in the NHS, well, um, do we have any experience of it? I think, um, yeah, we pretty much all have our own stories of experience of racism in the NHS. Um, I think sometimes it's outright and very, very apparent when, whether it's a patient or or a relative or even uh, another colleague. Mm openly saying something racist. That, in my experience, is extremely rare. But it's that insidious racism, that mm. sort of hidden racism that we don't really, um, can't quite put our finger on, that I think needs to be called out quite urgently. You know, those situations where you have a, a senior colleague who is very nice to everyone on your team, except you, even though you're doing your job just mm. as well, not better than anybody else and you're staying out of trouble and you're being a good little boy and following the rules. Isn't this sort of an individualistic aspect rather than an institutional thing? Because, I mean, I've experienced it, but it was an individual that was exhibiting these racist So is it subjective? Undertones. Is it a subjective perception? Is that So there's, so there's that, mm-hmm. definitely a subjective perception. Mm-hmm. Um, but it tends to be individuals rather than an institution that's championing this. I don't know. When, when you've got an organisation like the Royal College of General Practitioners and um, evidence shows that British medical graduates uh, who are of black, African uh, or minority ethnics have a failure rate that is three times higher than white Caucasian British graduates that's quite a lot. Now, I'm not openly turning around and saying that's definitely racism. But I think questions do need to be asked. Hmm. Why do you think that is? Well, the official line is they're not working as hard as the white people. (laughs) Hmm. I don't know. I don't have the answers there, but what I do know is uh, I don't want to be a member or an associate of that organisation. See, I think the problem is any institution mirrors the thoughts and feelings of the society in general. Now, that's not to say the whole of society in the UK is racist, Mm. but those in power and those who wield or move the wheels that turn the society are generally of a certain type. And they put in place rules and regulations which, A, discriminate unfairly against those of ethnic minorities, 
and be perceive them to be less qualified, less able. So when they go for a promotion, when they go for a job, there was a, a GP who used to run a course, which I actually attended, Una Coles, and she was she gained some, some notoriety for making these comments, saying that she was talking about foreign med- medical graduates, not British graduates, mm. but she was saying in the RCGP exam, foreign medical graduates are far more likely to fail. They're far more likely to have to resit two, three, four times. Um, and this is, she's saying, because they're expected to speak with a certain accent, to have a certain way of interacting with patients that may not be culturally what they're used to. Mm. Whereas they're clinically perfectly competent. They're perfectly good doctors. They can ascertain a history. They can examine. They can treat and manage. So I think there is this inherent bias in society and particularly at the higher echelons of society that trickles down to institutions, whether it's the health service, the police service, government, local and national. I I don't think this is just limited to race for example mm. um because there's there's i've got colleagues and, and friends who have be asperger's or or similar and i've noticed they've had similar issues fairly competent mm. doctors um and unfortunately they're not able to get their points across to a certain way or they come across as in a certain way mm. and um it's not favorable because there's this ideal of of what you should should be um so I agree that there's going to be some bias in terms of the way someone comes across to some extent, but I'm not sure we can just limit it just to as this is because of race. Yeah, I absolutely agree. But the race is the most apparent thing when someone with a darker skin tone or an accent that is not a British. And even I think, you know, we see that in the news nowadays it's different. But when we were kids, everyone who read the news had a British London stroke Queen's uh, speech accent, very mm. proper enunciation, very proper pronouncing of words. So, for example, they'd say class instead of class. But I didn't like them. I liked Trevor McDonald. Mm. Yeah. Wasn't he your favourite newsreader? He was great. <laughs> he was yes. brilliant. He was great. <laughs> but he was sort of the exception to the rule, wasn't he? I mean, how many other black... But why is that? I mean, why, why was he an exception? Is it... Does it depend on popularity? Does it depend on um, what's what the people want. So if that's what society wants, who are we to say that that's not right or that's racist or the that goes... The will of the people. It's, but Hitler well, was, it's Hitler not really was... the will, it's sort of more about market forces, really. Mm. So, you know, if, yeah. if this is what the, the, the public expect of a typical GP, you know, to talk in a particular accent, to look in a particular way, well, look, when you say the public, you're talking mm. about, what, 60 million people in the UK. Mm. Um, maybe more. I've maybe got my numbers wrong. So, you know, you can't possibly say that that's, this is the one thing that they all want. Now, mm. we've got to recognise mm. that, you know, we have to work to a certain standard mm. and uh, meet certain criteria and fulfil expectations of a doctor while still being who we are at mm. a human level and connecting with another person at a human level. And I think if we find that, we're not managing to do that, then maybe there's a problem with them, maybe there's a problem with us. Mm. But what's important is that person goes somewhere and gets the level of care that they're seeking. So I think um, coming back to race, I I, kind of go back to what my dad told me when I was really young. Um, And he he took me to one side and he said um, something I'll never forget. He said that whether I like it or not, I, as a darker skinned, you know, the son of an Indian immigrant, immigrant here, 
um, have to work at least twice as hard as the fair skinned man to get as far as I want to get. And that's just the way it is. So suck it up, cry about it now, deal with it, get on with it, and uh, get yourself back to work. I mean, your your dad worked in the NHS as yeah. a uh, um, uh, intensive care yeah, so specialist. He became a consultant in 1974, the year I was born, and uh, did ITU. So he was working 100, 110 hours a week, sometimes insane hours, incredibly unsafe. Pay was ridiculous. Just got his head down and worked. Got ridiculously low, of course. Yeah, ridiculously yeah. low is yeah. what I meant. Yeah. And it was so bad that he would have to, he would take his annual leave and go and work in, in Germany or Sweden, locuming where they paid um, significantly more. Um, so I mean, it was it was tough. tough and did he mention racism to you? Did he? Yes. Yeah. Yes, he did. But his response was just, you know, don't fight it, don't confront it, don't face it. Just you keep your head down and yeah. you just go and be brilliant at what you do. Yeah. And that's really been been my response, my reaction. There are times I get a little bit sucked into things, and yeah. a bit reactionary. Um, but you know, ultimately, I think if you're fighting the good fight, then it doesn't really matter. I think. Um, the important thing is that we're doing our jobs to the best of our ability. We're making a positive difference and we're helping our patients. Mm -hmm. So yes, I think there is racism. I don't think that it's something that I want to put a huge magnifying glass over yeah. or, you know, put myself out to be a victim. I'm absolutely not a victim at all. I'm really, really lucky, really blessed and privileged to be able to work for the NHS. But um, yeah, I can't deny that it exists. Mm. So how can we move forward in terms of, um, do we just highlight it and then carry on with working or what would you like yeah. to see, you know, what, what kind of changes would you like to see, Sahel? I mean, I think I teach in three medical schools and I am seeing that this is coming into the curriculum. So we talked about autism, Asperger's, so they're, they're making provisions for people with those type of conditions to make the learning easier for them to accommodate them. I've had a, a medical student in a wheelchair which was something I never saw when I was at medical school I never saw one single student in a wheelchair throughout the years that I was there um, I saw one oh, yeah. yeah so there are there are steps to try and improve these things to improve access to those who uh, traditionally perhaps wouldn't have entered medicine mm. whether it's for a physical disability uh, an intellectual problem or because they feel that they're from Lewisham and they're a black kid and they're never going to get anywhere so I think we are making steps to combat that at that level but still at the higher up level there's still a lot of inherent institutional bias against those who are different the, the, the actually would, would you mind if i disagree slightly on that in that looking at the ward rosters on the all the wards that i go see patients on there's the roster which has all the all the clinicians there all the nurses all the all the workers of that ward with their names the there are very few actually on on these rosters in in hospitals that I've, I've worked at that are actually of um white caucasian origin in on these on these photos and this is not a bad thing it's not a criticism this mm. is just i'm just simply highlighting that actually a lot of doctors now a lot of nurses are not from um uk ethnicity mm -hmm. and so this this bias if it does exist that is in my eyes coming down yeah um yeah. and the powers that be as as um this cohort this generation which are these photos are moving up the ranks mm. they are making up the, ma the majority now 
rather than the um, stereotypes that we've we've talked about mm. before. So, just from personal experience, I've I've noticed that actually in many places I've worked, I'm the minority mm. as a Caucasian mm-hmm. male, yeah. um, and so yeah, I think things are changing, um, you know, in a good way. Another thing to point out is, you know, thanks to things like Twitter and social media, um, we are seeing a lot of people coming out and talking of their experiences. There was this well-known A&E consultant who went on Twitter recently, and another GP actually in, um, up in Glasgow, um, who I won't name, but said that they had patients come up to them and say, I don't want to see you, I want to see a white mm. doctor. Mm. And there's this outrage that follows, like, oh my gosh, you can't believe he said that how can you say that I mean, let's not pretend this is a new problem this has been happening for decades yeah. it really has been happening for decades. and you know it's been whether it's swept under the carpet or um you know a blind eye turned to it it's actually been happening for so much longer than, than we realize um i do remember when i started my partnership um and uh, we were sitting in the one of our first meetings and uh the practice manager brought this to our attention that um saw a doctor and didn't said I don't want to see that doctor again I want to see a white doctor and what was interesting was the partners who were all white immediately said throwing them off the list whereas me and the Indian doctor who worked there kind of looked at each other and we just started laughing saying fine don't see us yeah. we don't care <laughs> you know, whatever yeah. I'd much rather see a patient yeah. who wants to see me yeah. and is going to take on board what I have to say and if people don't want to see me on the basis of my skin colour then I'm certainly not the doctor for them. Yeah. But then there are Muslim patients who want to see a Muslim or an Asian doctor. Hmm. And yet we sort of don't treat that as any, you know, as a racist event. Well, I mean, if we want to get pedantic, it's not really racism, but, but yeah, I understand what you mean. Um, and uh, that, that is, is, is equally unacceptable. Yeah. But then we accept that more than... I don't think, think we should. Uh, we I, don't. Don't, I don't think we should. Um, I haven't seen it. I haven't come across that personally, though. Have you? Uh, I see it all the time. Oh, really? Yeah. 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 From uh, from my perspective, from the training and and everything, I've I've actually noticed racism amongst within the uh, within the Caucasian community. So, as in, I've worked in all, all corners of the UK um, over the last ten years, and. Mm. I've definitely noticed it, and it's quite open. Um, bit from where you work, uh, I've worked in Northern Ireland as well. That was um, lovely place, uh, but it was definitely, definitely felt elements of it mm-hmm. um, because of history, because of mm. of culture, and yeah, uh, even even outside of the hospital, and so it does exist not just between yeah. cultures, but actually between uh, within. Mm within the Caucasian society as well. Um, I think what's most sad about this is the lack of support for the doctors that are adversely affected by it. There was, mm. it was, on, there was a documentary on, I think it was Channel 4, of this um, senior um, NHS surgeon. I say senior, he's not that much older than me. Um, and uh, he was telling a story about how he was treating a patient and then immediately, just before signing the consent form the patient said to him by the way i want you to make sure my surgeon is a white person and this consultant was like well, gosh um 
And he didn't know what to say. He said, all he said was, I'll see what I can do. And, and he went on to this um, interview and he said, the reason I didn't know what else to say is because I don't know how I will be protected mm. by the system, by the hospitals, by the trust, by um, the MDU in these situations if I mm. say something. Um, because, you know, I mean, clearly it's an unacceptable thing to say. Ultimately, if you need, if I need an operation that's life-saving, I do not care what the skin colour of the surgeon, you know, so long as they're competent, they're able to do the, yeah. the job, you know, hack away, whatever you've got to do. Um, but, uh, yeah, I think the, the lack of support in these situations is something that uh, I'm, I'm most concerned about, those yeah. people who are affected by I think the dialogue them. is really important to have this dialogue, first yeah. of all, mm. so these issues are highlighted and these issues are... Um, discussed and then from that um, then they can raise uh, you know issues with the powers be and then they can mm. have protocols put in place and I think that's really important and and that's mm. why we're having this I mean, it's a very it's a very uncomfortable conversation to have mm. and we're fairly comfortable between each other and we're all kind of treading you know difficult waters yeah um, and, but we need to have these conversations. It's because we, it's something that we don't want to admit exists, or it's something we don't want to um, talk about in case and we say everywhere. the wrong thing. And it's everywhere. And you know, that's the point I wanna I wanna put across. It's no point in saying it's just them and it's not us. It's everywhere. Mm. Racism is everywhere. And okay, we are in the UK, but you know, if you go to Iraq, there's racism there. You know, they don't want to be treated by X, Y, and Z, whether it's religion or race or, or colour or, or scarf or whatever. So, I mean, it's an issue that's that's ubiquitous with, with human beings. You know, it's not just sort of... So how are we going to solve it? By coming together and talking about it, you know, see, seeing what the issues are. You know, mm -hmm. Why don't you want to be treated by a, a white doctor or a black doctor or an Asian doctor? So these things need to be discussed mm. and, you know, you need to find ways of of solving this service. Cri I mean, we've got a service crisis at the end of the day. We don't have enough doctors. Mm. Full stop. That's true. So we do need to find ways of accommodating all kinds of belief systems. Because that's what it is at the end of the day. It's different mm. belief systems that are not compatible mm. with each other. Mm. And you know we 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 do have to sit down and 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 uh, discuss it all. Yeah, I, think I don't know. I mean, I, I, that's what I, that's I think. What definitely I think. Um, going back to what what Shan said, the lack of support for for doctors who, mm. who do isn't that just a perception this? though, rather than a reality? It could so, be, you know, but you know, so if we if, we, if we go to the MDU, so if we go to the MDU and say, look, we've got this problem. Okay, mm. what, is, well, the, what is the support system that I have rather than having that perception that I'm not supported? Let's phone up the NDU now and see <laughs> yeah. what they say. Well, exactly. So, you know, that's, you know, that's something that's worth discussing and making it very explicit. Mm. And then from that, we will have experts in race relations or inter-race communication skills to sit down and do workshops that the MDU gets involved in uh, doctor leadership get, gets involved in, political leadership gets involved in, and it becomes a much more open dialogue. Mm. And then they can sit down and say, okay, we've got these uh, situations in place, and then we've got these procedures in place. Mm -hmm. mm. And then they can sort of bat out some, some hard and fast rules. 
Yeah, I think it's not going to be solved by workshops and seminars, though. They may be, <laughs> they, they may be a way into raising awareness. But I mean, let's look at football. I don't follow. Football, no, no, no. Let's leave football. Okay. How but, are you going to solve it, Sahel? So no, I was just saying they. So you know, you're made, saying you're saying that you know this whole system mm. is institutionalized racism, mm. and how are you going to solve that? So it's when there is actual punitive measures. For the doctor who voices such opinions or commits, um, pre, you know, gives preferential treatment or promotion to a particular doctor because of their race or, or origin. So you know, once and until and unless there is punitive uh, action, then we can't say that the doctor committing that act will have any reason to not commit it. If they know that I'm going to be penalised or I'm going to be investigated by the GMC. I'm going to have some sanction placed upon me for exp exhibiting these racist behaviours, then, of course, there will be some curtailing of them even thinking about doing that. But then they're just internalising the racism. It still exists. Mm. The other problem is going to be proving it. And what I mean by that is I'm not talking about the overtly racist comments or, or things like that. I'm, I'm talking about, say, if someone gets promoted or someone gets reported rather, um, and they're of an ethnic minority. It's, okay, but did they need to be reported? And that, that's, that's the where there's going to be a grey area. Say, for example, I've, I've reported people um, who I work, who I've worked with um, because of dangerous grounds, mm. and it was very well justified. Um, they are of, a, of ethnic minority. I didn't report them because of the minority no, because yes, of yes. the unsafe practice mm. and if it goes to okay why was this person chosen to be a prom uh, be promoted over, over the other person is it well because clinically they're they're better mm. that that would be the comeback as it were it's mm. the easy mm. comeback mm. um and so it, it's proving that yeah it's that mm. um and in some cases it it is yeah but it's whether or not this is for every case or whether or not it is, yeah. as you say. Mm. Um, so it's it's going to be, it's a, it is a grey area and um, it's going to be very difficult, I think, to try and find a, a, a balance or try and find a, a way of going forward with it, personally. Um, mm. I'll leave that to people more clever than me. So, but... There know. aren't many of those, though, Paul. <laughs> <laughs> I think coming back to what you said about punitive measures, I'm 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 just not sure how how far they would really go. I mean, what what do we mean by punitive? I'm much rather look at it in a way that would be similar to say if I had if I had a house party and one of my guests was acting or behaving in an extremely racist manner, I'd throw him out in the street. And you know, we mm. we kind of look at it in a similar objective. You know, if we've got one of our staff, one of our colleagues. That we're entrusting in the health, the health and well-being of our patients, and they're acting in this manner. I don't believe punitive measures will do anything. Just you know, off you go. Mm. You don't belong here. This is totally unacceptable. Mm. This kind of language has, has no place in modern society. And um, coming back to your point earlier, I think things are an awful lot better now mm. than they were in the 70s and 80s and mm. 90s. Um, it's just that nowadays we are seeing information disseminate so much more rapidly. We're seeing videos of you know ex real life experiences mm. uh, that uh, people are subjected to go viral mm. instantly 
Um, I mean, speaking of videos, I don't know if you know this, but there's something in the BMA that I heard about that there is absolutely nothing to stop a patient from having a consultation with you and videoing the whole thing. You can't do anything to stop them. Really? Mm. So they can, without your knowledge as well. With without our knowledge yes. as well. Yeah, yeah. it's outrageous. Yeah. But yet, if it was the other way around, oh god, <laughs> that would be uh, that would be an interesting. And, and this is this comes back to what what I chatted about with you, um, Hyder, on um, on your last uh, on our last interview. Is that shift of power has moved so strongly towards the patient and mm. so far away from the doctors um, that you know we are actually tiptoeing around so many important issues that really need to be addressed, such as a patient turning around and saying to me. I don't want you operating on me because you're brown. And I've got no problem with that. <laughs> that's fine. I won't operate on you then. Um, because that's the way I've, I've been sort of brought mm. up and raised. But I can completely imagine and 100% support a doctor who would be upset or distressed by such a comment. Yeah. I didn't know they could video you. That's just stayed mm. in my mind now, actually. Just to yeah. Enjoy your next clinic. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Thankfully, I can uh, make him sleep. But <laughs> but still, we we uh, love to be on video, don't we? I mean, even oh, well, if you is, do, of course. I've seen your I mean, Facebook posts. You know, so. Even if it's a, um, a consultation, I mean, what's wrong with them videoing you? But it's without your consent. As a... And say if something... But you're there as a doctor. You're mm. not there as Sahel, the human being, yeah. who doesn't give consent. You're there as the general practitioner seeing your patient. So you're professional and you're courteous and you're the GP. Mm. But I isn't mean, it you about know, what limits does... of privacy and... and um... It's your patient. But it's mm. similar to the argument of, of a speed camera, you know, if, if uh, why, why show them? Because you're always abiding by the speed law, you know, so therefore there shouldn't be an issue. You're never going above 30, you're never going above 70. In, in reality, there's going to be, you know, times where you're doing 71, 72 or... What? You do 17? I know. It's, uh, I'm sure. I do 17 Got it on camera now. Sure. I do 17 and 30 yeah. miles <laughs> But you know, you know what I mean. We're, we're, of course Find me if you can. <laughs> uh, of course you're going to be professional and, and courteous all the time, as you were with everyone, but it's that, that one moment where you may mm. slip up yeah. and yeah. you may say something that you know, well, I mean, if they got one of those um, sort of spy cameras that they could have, you know, yeah. put in their uh, pockets, yeah. then it's so, a different are, are we ball game. To slip up? How, how, well, how well, well are these slip-ups tolerated? That's <laughs> not very nowadays. That's not the very. thing. There's a really interesting podcast by uh, TED Talk, sorry, by Dr. Brian Goldman, who's a, a Canadian uh, emergency doctor, and he says doctors make mistakes, and and he talks about baseball and a batting average of 0.3, which is three in ten home mm. runs and he said we as doctors as physicians are expected to have a 10 out of 10 mm. home run success which is absolutely impossible so i mm. think we beat ourselves up about that we beat our colleagues up about mm. that oh well you know you missed messed up that operation or you had a complication or a patient had a side effect or you gave you didn't check drug drug interactions it's impossible absolutely mm. impossible to be on top of everything all the time 100 percent of the mm. time yeah but then remember. there's mistakes and then there's mistakes well, yeah. look, let's look at mistakes. We're human. Humans make mistakes. Yeah. So, you know, we, we, we're always going to be human, and that humanity and the human connection we have with our patients is absolutely critical. But it's almost like, well, you can't be too human. Because mm. if you're too human, then you'll be making more mistakes than average, and we don't want that. So 
it's a really, really fine balance uh, to find out where we should actually be. And it seems to be moving more away from being human Mm. and more towards being algorithmic and protocol driven, which, as you know, how much I love that stuff. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, we're not far from Babylon Health here, are we? No, it's just down the road from here. Have you been down there before? I haven't been to the offices, no. Oh, it's lovely. Really nice bunch of people. They're going to replace us all. Mm. Well, not you. you, They might. (laughs) (laughs) We're all replaceable, they say. They absolutely might. But Uh, it is interesting that, yeah, the number of how, just how careful we have to be. And mm. and we've chatted about this before, Hayden, just... I'm being less careful. I don't know how how, how that's working. I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> <You said laughs> <last year. laughs> I'm being less careful. I saw a patient with a white stick in No, no, no. Don't do them anymore. But we, we don't take the... I, I feel we don't take the same risks, and I use that term for want of a better one, but you know we don't have the same ingenuity almost as, as we used to. And yeah, our, our risk tolerance is reduced yeah. without a doubt. You know, and, and all these things, all these breakthroughs, and you know, like like the guy that made the first laryngeal mask airway just moulding bits of rubber in his room and then on night shifts sticking them down patients until eventually he found a, found a, <laughs> found a solution that fit. <laughs> fit and then the rest was history, re- revolutionised the so way. how many people aspirated before? <laughs> we don't know. <laughs> but, you know, but if it wasn't for, you know, you do, you do that now, you'd be struck off in, in no time. Yeah. You know? And, you know, but back then it was like, yeah, let's see how this goes. Mm. Um, and I think... You know. Particularly if you're Asian, you'd be instantly struck <laughs> off. <laughs> Creative bunch there. That's a good circle there. <laughs> but yeah, it's it's just it's a shame because you think things like that, which make wonderful stories, but also um, make for wonderful. Revolution. But I think you've got to be. I mean, you know, talking about taping and so on. I think mm. if I had a patient comes in taping me, I'd be even better. So I'd use that. Even better but, than you are? Of course, yeah. It's not possible. Wow. You'll be on your A-plus game. <laughs> <laughs> We'd be submitting it to your appraisal. <laughs> well, I did get, actually, uh, yeah. Uh, my uh, responsible officer did send me a very interesting picture of himself. Oh, did you? Because you were having some difficulties getting yeah, hold of him. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, I, I kind of use that to my advantage. And I think... More doctors should do that. What happened? Oh, they're still okay. <laughs> still practicing. <laughs> still registered. <laughs> the box is still ticked. Actually, that's the thing. I think we need to be aware of, perhaps less our generation, because I'm not on Facebook, I'm not on Instagram, but I think the students of now who are at medical school and the junior doctors are posting every day, all day, mm-hmm. in their, themselves in compromising positions, uh, heard of something called uh, bus stopping or something. I don't know. That may not be the There's right word. There's nothing wrong with that, sir. Lying on a bus yeah. bus shelter, drunk, passed out, comatose. Doctors? Yeah, medical students. Mm. Oh, medical, medical students. students. And then uh, this is on Facebook forever. Pretty regular behaviour you know what I mean? Students. I mean, you know... But then I mean, it could be used against them. Or, or imagine you're, you've had a... You're, you just finished your house of... What are they called now? Um, FY1. F1. Yeah, you finished yeah. your FY1 shift. It's been really busy. So you had a crap shift today consultant was here's my crap <laughs> consultant was an ass and you just post that yeah then. but I know I, I know it's not professional but I think um, you know as I know we're not allowed to be human anymore mm. but I think it's still okay to show you humanism 
And if you can justify yourself in front of the board... I think being human is ultimately what's going to save medicine, in my opinion. Well, that's the only thing about medicine. Because it's, if we think about yeah. it, as, as we're moving more and more protocol-driven, yeah. what, what are these computers ever, never going to be able to do? They're never going to be able to replicate human connection from one person to turn to another and say, you know, you're going to be all right, Paul. Yeah. And then patients will go to the wax at the end of the quacks because they're the ones who are creating that human, you know, and us as a profession, Mm. we're going to be, you know, old school, mate. No one's going to come and see a doctor anymore. Other than old, well, old we people. are old too. <laughs> we can't <laughs> deny it. Yeah, we qualified in the nineties. We've got a young young whippersnapper here next to us, uh, educating us on how things are nowadays. <laughs> I feel I feel I have a older mind. <laughs> but you are, I have to say, you are wise beyond your words, uh, Paul. Beyond, you. beyond your years, Paul. Thank you. But, uh, no, it's it's true. Uh, the the protocol thing. Um, I, I noticed it even at med school. The mm. amount of time we spent on communication skills, mm. which. Granted, it's important, very important, the way you talk to people and how you address breaking bad news, and that's fine. But it was a det- in, in detrimental terms, we didn't spend as much time on things like the important things, mm. for me at least, like things like anatomy or the physiology. Oh, I 100% agree. And so it's almost like you are being taught to look like you know what you're doing without mm. actually knowing what you're doing. How much time did we spend studying sarcoidosis, lupus? SLE was just such a massive... How many cases of SLE have you seen in your life? <laughs> <laughs> well, Everywhere you watch House, it's always <laughs> SLE, isn't it? But yeah, it's, it's true. Um, but that's because medical education so far is changing now, is secondary care driven. They spend most of their time in the wards, seeing weird and wonderful esoteric conditions, um, that they will never ever see even as a consultant if they go into that specialty mm. it will be the hen's teeth case that they see mm. and in general practice where where i am based and i and you're based you know we see the common day-to-day stuff the person with the cough probably has a chest infection or viral infection unlikely sarcoidosis but, but that would be boring to learn of course in, but in medical school you know i mean you know, we'd learn that in a week i i i made a sort of <laughs> yeah, gps what do they know uh, <laughs> Doing a week. Come on, man, you know, all these little minutiae. I mean, I, I remember studying for my, you know, ophthalmic exams. It was just minutiae. Hmm. And then I finished my exams, I went to clinic, and it was the same old <laughs> boring stuff. We, we're not and looking thought, for more advanced point? or rare diagnosis. Uh, what's the point of this? I was like, oh, I fell asleep. <laughs> <laughs> I'm back to sleep again. <laughs> They're working on the premise that if you've, if you've read the minutiae, if you know it, if you, then if, you, if you knew the mic, you can be a pedantic sod, and I was a pedantic sod actually. I'll <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I know that is. Uh, yeah, off you go, mate. But I think what's important is narrative. Narrative based medicine is the way forward. And that encompasses humanity, that encompasses. And that encompasses, sorry, a social media. You know, talking about your crap and talking about your, how you had a, you know, it's well, great. Yeah, you've got to remember that people, who, when they've had a crap day at work and they want to blow off steam and they haven't got anyone to call, then they'll mm. just do it on social media and they mm. feel better as a result. Mm. So, you know, if their consultant has acted like an arse, yeah. which they probably have, let's be honest, why not just post it? Yeah. I think it's a good thing. You might mm. get into trouble. But if you Don't say defamatory wrong, I'm, I'm or... or <laughs> yeah, I mean, you would get into trouble, but at least it's sort of out there, and I think that's a good thing. You know, slander, def- defamation, 
these sorts of, and then well, dodgy yeah, there's territory. There's stuff out there that you can yeah. get stuck Yeah, you, you've got to be brave to do it, let's be yeah. honest. You know, this, this isn't the sort of behaviour for everyone. It's not like the sort of behaviour yeah. I, I condone, just to be clear. But, you know, ultimately, if, if I think that someone is being totally out of order and unreasonable mm. and, and I've got something to say about it, I do and I will, as you probably saw from my Twitter feed recently. <laughs> <laughs> what happened? What would you do? Oh, just you know all this nonsense with PCNs and and oh. how they're debating this contract. Look, what is there to even debate? You know, just no. Let's just say no. Um, why are we involving LMCs to even talk about it? You know, I can't remember the last time uh, my LMC did anything for us, and um, yeah, they got a bit sarcastic with my response, so I called them out on a number of issues and. and- did that move you forward, as in get what you want, or not really? No, but I felt better. Oh, OK. I felt better saying, look, you know what? Here's a few things that are happening on your watch right now. Suicide rates are up to four times the national average amongst doctors in the UK. What are you doing about it? Mental health problems, mm-hmm. um, 25% prevalence within the health service. What are you doing about it? Um, so many other things I talk about. You know, I think it was 25% of doctors resort to alcohol, drugs, or self-prescriptions just to get through their daily shifts. Mm. What are you doing about it? And did this get you in trouble? No, it didn't. Not yet. I was a bit disappointed, I have to say. I was... Well, you weren't doing it to get in trouble, but you were, you, you had you had you stuff to say. You yeah. response. And, Thank you know, and who else are you going to speak to as well? It's not as if... Well, particularly you know, you know, the a, official lines are going to listen to it. Particularly when a representative body who I've paid a little fortune to over the years is actually turning around and being sarcastic to me and trying to brush off these very, very serious problems that our profession is, is currently facing. Not least to mention the problems we have with recruitment and retention. You know, we've lost yeah. 20% of our workforce doing in the last nothing six about years. It. They're doing nothing. Yeah. So, you know, I yeah. mean, you know, if your consultant does something... RC, just put it out there on social media. Yeah. And he or she may change. Yeah, I had a good um, good little spat with uh, Dr. Mooring Baker, the um, RCGP oh, former yeah. chair. Mm. Oh, dear. Just... <laughs> thought, why, why are you even, you know, starting an argument with me? Do you not know how this is going to end? And, uh, you know, just what was the argument about? put her in her place. It was actually your mate, um, Dr. Um, Gandalf... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Who, um, yeah, Gandhi, he, he, yeah. Who I don't know, I'm sure he's a lovely Gandhi guy. Um, but, uh, EGP Learning. Yes, that's the one. Yes, yeah. he's doing a big yeah. shout out for his website if you want to. Um, yeah, EGP Learning. Nice work, Dr. <laughs> Gandhi. Keep who, it up. I haven't met him. I'm sure he's a lovely bloke. We, we live in the same town. Um, Our podcast episode's coming out in a few weeks. <laughs> <laughs> he's going to leave a link below for it. As well. well, yeah, if, if he releases it after this. So then, yeah, Maureen Sullivan, just... Am I getting her name right? Maureen, is it Maureen, Maureen Baker? Maureen Baker, yeah, that's the yeah. one, yeah. Forgive me. Maureen Sullivan, I'm sure, is a very pleasant person. Jumped in on it and started to take over and go on about, you know, the uh, RCGP's agenda for, you know, uh, overwhelming support for GPs. And I was like, well, I don't see any evidence of that whatsoever. Mm. But what I can give you is some facts. Here you go, one at a time, Maureen. Bang. And, uh, yeah, no response. And it's interesting that... Because there is no response, you know. Yeah, facts how, are good at the end of the day. How do you facts, respond yeah. to the fact that suicide rates amongst doctors are up to four times the national average? Where's the response? I think one the one thing I've noticed with with these um, with these figures that you get get thrown out, so you, you get told an exp- you get told why something's a problem. Mm. So 
but you'll never get a solution mm. told to you. Mm. You'll, they'll say, oh, this is this is happening. So many people are dying. So many people are committing suicide. And this is a stress rate now amongst us as we've conducted a survey. Mm. So it looks like you've mm. done something. Yeah, like, addressed it. But yeah. that's where it ends. You don't get the, now this is what we're going to do to try and resolve this. Mm. Or you'll get a discussion group meeting which says, we need to do this. We need, But actually, nothing transpires of it. Or... or the solutions are so weak uh, that they're not even worth mentioning. So what does it take to start the process of solution of reducing mental health problems and suicide in doctors? Apart from talking about which, you know, we are... So I think, I, I can't remember the name, I think it's called Doctors for Doctors is the organisation. I uh, went to appraiser training recently. So we have to, as, a, as an appraiser, we have to go annual training. And there was the, the doctor from there who basically runs this organisation... And she was saying these very same things. It was talking about doctors, but particularly GPs. So GPs, divorce rate, suicide rate, alcoholism, depression, mental health problems, by the bucket load. Mm. Loads and loads of doctors. And and as you were saying, they medicate just to go back to work and do a clinic that is ram full of patients. 15, 18 patients in the morning, 18 patients in the afternoon, three home visits in the, in the lunchtime, reams of paperwork. That'll kill you. Yeah. Mm. So that's one thing we need to address, the unsustainable model of general practice and healthcare provision. But also we need to have the institutions, RCGP, I totally agree, is a useless body. They have no way to support the people who paid to keep them going. There is nothing there for them, for doctors to turn to and say, listen, I'm really struggling. You know what? I just broke up with my wife. I've been drinking like a fish. Can you help me, please? Oh, well, no, let's give you a suspension for not being a fit and proper doctor mm-hmm. for yeah. drinking on the job. I mean, how how human how how humane is that? Mm-hmm. Mm. Yeah, it's... I don't think I've got anything to add to my already expressed opinions on the RCGP. <laughs> <laughs> I have no experience with them, but uh, from oh, they're lovely. I'm sure. I'm sure they're <laughs> lovely. I'm sure. Yeah. yeah, I mean, there's not enough um, money, time, support, personnel, people in this area. And it's only just starting now, really. I mean, only in the last sort of year or six months that people mm. are actually trying to find ways of mm. of, of helping struggling doctors. Mm. <clears throat> it's going to get worse because mm. people are going to come out wanting, needing help. Not wanting help, needing mm. help. There, there was one thing which um, from doing the burnout episodes and um, meeting people uh, who have suffered from it or or who are helping to... Um, helping to eradicate the problem through various foundations and things. It seems to be there's a, still a very big stigma regarding mm. actually wanting to come forward yeah. and saying, I've got this problem. Mm. Because it's, it's generally seen that it's not acceptable for, yeah. as we were saying, a doctor to be human and to mm. have these problems. And mm. you're seen as weak. And so people aren't going to their supervisors, not going to their consultants, they're not going to you know, uh, whatever body that they're registered with and saying that there's a, there's an issue. And it, it's trying to get rid of this stigma, saying it's, it's actually okay to come forward and mm. say, you know, I need time off, I need help with this. Um, so it is all, as well as there is a problem at the higher end in terms of the, the trainers, as it were, um, there's also a problem at the lower end of the people actually suffering with it, mm. um, actually wanting to make it known yeah. Mm. Their See, when I the... when I finished VTS in two thousand and six, 
my dream was to become a partner. And I, and I did. I joined a partnership mm. um, because of relationships with the partners. I couldn't sustain it. But now it is the last thing I would ever want to get into. And therein lies the problem, recruitment and retention. People yeah. are thinking of retiring age 50, 55, yeah. 10 years before they would normally retire. People are thinking of not joining general practice. I can speak for general practice because that's what I'm familiar with. People are definitely not wanting to do partnership or long-term commitment. So you have this fractured, disjointed workforce that doesn't know their colleagues and most importantly doesn't know the patients. I come in, I do a locum and I think, oh, yeah, I saw the consultant last week. I have to wave through, through the, yeah. the computer nose. Oh, you've been referred for your knee. Okay. It takes twice as long to do consultation. And then we have the pressure of there's 10 more patients waiting outside. Mm. Hurry up, hurry up, doctor. Why are you an hour late? Who's saying hurry up, hurry up to you? Well, often... Do, do, do you let people speak to you like I that? I don't, I don't, but I'm just saying that I take as long as I want to consult. Good. And if a patient needs a half an hour, they need a half an hour. If yeah. it's a two-minute uh, pill check or whatever, then it's a two-minute pill check. Just do the blood pressure, that's done. So I take as long as I need and as long as I feel it's appropriate for that mm. patient. But there is an inherent pressure, even in the back of my mind, that oh, I've got this massive clinic that's still mm. there. And you walk into the waiting room and think, Oh, and you see the third patient after the one, you've got two more in front of them, and they're mm. looking at you thinking, is it me next? Mm. So this pressure you put on yourself, mm. and then you were likely to make mistakes, or you could make mistakes, you could rush, you could not listen properly, and then, they, and then oh, only one problem per consultation. How is that a way to deal with a patient? Sorry, you can only discuss your knee, you can't discuss the ankle, which might be connected to the knee. You can't discuss the headaches that you're having. Mm. Why not? Why not, you know? Mm. Uh, a big shout out to Amandip Sidhu, who's yeah. um, working in the uh, uh, Doctors in Distress organization. So that's definitely someone yeah. to, to, mm -hmm. to contact and uh, speak to. Uh, and he's doing some amazing work in helping doctors in, in distress. Well done, Amandip. Yeah. And uh, we've actually just done a s small collaboration as well mm. um, with, with the podcast. So mm. he's uh, an affiliate now with the podcast his charity and so yeah thank you it's been yeah. it's been lovely meeting you and also the the work that he's doing is actually phenomenal now it's getting bigger and bigger which is so good. yeah i mean you know that's the kind of positive side of um um of of this increasing phenomenon uh, yeah and i think we need to we need more of that yeah we, we need to champion need that to keep you know there are people that. out there um it would be good to get central organizations championing like well, yeah, um, it's essential, full stop. It's essential. I mean, I work in the private healthcare sector and we need to take care of our doctors because if we don't have doctors, we have no clinics. And if we have no clinics, we have no income coming in. And I think mm. they need to seriously think about that. I, mm. I, I don't understand NHS England. I don't understand NHS full stop. I mean, why are they just letting it, you know, letting it bleed? Literally. I mean, do you, do you think this is the start of the end of the NHS? This has been going yeah. on for 30 years. This was started under Thatcher and Ken Clark, the cuddly, hush puppy wearing Tory. There's nothing wrong with hush puppies. There's nothing wrong with hush puppies. There's nothing wrong with hush puppies. You know, I love these dirty trainers you got. Oh, on. please. <laughs> outrageous. But well, I'm not wearing hush puppies today, <laughs> but I used to wear fucking hush puppies all the bloody time. <laughs> but no, it's just my. Uh, you know, the impression that... <laughs> Pulling your leg, mate. Sorry, yeah. go on. <laughs> that Ken Clark is a cuddly Tory, very, very far from it. He's happy I'm a Tory to... as well, mate. <laughs> happy to sell cigarettes I'm to... I'm uh, cuddly as well. ...to pregnant women in Vietnam. 
on the board of British American Tobacco. But let's not get sidetracked. So the sell-off of the NHS that is started. Such a, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> soundbite, wonderful, a great soundbite. Let's, you know, the sell-off started 30 years ago and was accelerated under Tony Blair and with PFI. The creation of an internal market, trust, purchaser-provider split. This is all just a subtle, well, not so subtle nowadays, but a subtle, insidious move to fracture and break the NHS. And it's been going on for 30 years. But populations have changed, expectations have changed, cultures have changed. Uh, Hairstyles have changed. My my hairstyles have changed. (laughs) I'm sure yours has changed. Did you get that from Kailash Chan's uh, article that he wrote, that the end game was always to dismantle general practice? Uh, I mean, I don't think I've read that article, but it's just through having read up on the issue and following mm. the developments that have been happening. Mm. Tendering out of services to uh, private healthcare providers, United Health, Kaiser Permanente, these massive US... Well, if they comments. do a better job... But they, what is their end goal? What is their end aim? Profit. Profit yeah, over patients the NHS is never, isn't working. But that's the myth that is dispelled. You well, sell this I, myth. I think, I mean, even prior to this, GPs needed to make a profit just to sustain. I think ultimately a lot of the things that have been passed on to the private sector, and I don't agree with a lot of it, um, but it's happened because general practices coming together or you know, creating organisations to serve such needs have not been able to do it because they are so overwhelmed with all the work that uh, they have to do day to day. We saw it in my area quite a lot, you know, that set up triage services for orthopaedics, which was actually very effective. Um, and uh, ultimately, the, the uh, contract expired, went out to tender, and uh, an organisation bid for it, and they won it because they could do a better job. Now, I don't know the ins and outs of the bidding process or who said what to whom or anything like that, but they ended up doing a better job. Um, and yes, they've got a responsibility to their shareholders mm-hmm. to make money. That's how business is done. But in terms of the actual process of privatisation, it's it's not like they've enforced it. They A lot of the time they've had no choice because they can't get homegrown organisations to come together and do it in a non-corporate way. Also, GPs are leaving the NHS and going mm. to where the, the work is. Mm. You know, it's not as if everyone's being forced out of it. It's people are walking to where, where they want to walk to. But that's connected with workforce issues and workload and things that we've already talked about before, why, why GPs are leaving. But is this a natural progression, evolution of healthcare, or is it... I'm not saying that's what you're saying, but this is kind of planned, politically planned, to go that way. Yeah, so where's Alan Milburn now? Don't know, where is he? On the uh, Bridgewater Capital, who own Care UK. Isn't that a coincidence? This massive revolving Natural corporate migration of... of, I think we'd be naive to think that his work initially was done solely for the good of the people. And it was well, never done for the good of the people. Yeah, obviously, we, that's the point I'm making. Um, and, I mean, I, I, I take your word for it, if that's, if that's what he's doing now, I don't know, I'm not really up to speed on what he's up to. But um, I think what we've got to look at, the bigger question here is, why have we needed to involve all of this privatisation? Why isn't the sort of the day-to-day work, general practice, enough to meet it all within the primary care setting where 90% of all NHS consultations happen? 
Now, there are a lot of answers, potential answers to that. I think one of the biggest ones is that there have been organizations and institutions that are actively going out of their way to make the job harder and more challenging and more frustrating, more irritating, big box ticking exercises and and um, punitive measures for those who steer away from pathways, policies, protocols, procedures. And it just gets really frustrating. So a lot of people are saying, you know what, forget about it. I don't want to do it. I'm just going to go part time, do a couple of days a week. And the rest of the time, I'm just going to spend with loved ones, watch my children grow, do something else, buy a few properties. I don't know, but whatever, whatever the GPs do. Um, they're certainly not playing golf quite as much as they used to back in the 90s. <laughs> Um, so, yeah, I mean, you're absolutely right. It's a complete mess. And, mm. and you know, there are organizations that are profiting out of it. Um, and uh, But they do have responsibilities both to their shareholders and also to the NHS. Um, the strict criteria that they have to meet um, to to keep those contracts going. And if they don't, then that contract is is cancelled. Do you think the criteria will get more lenient as, as the years go on? I find it strange that there seem to be, but the, mm. um, the it's becoming less lenient against doctors, isn't it? You know, it's becoming more stringent, and you know the thumb screws are attached and tight. I'm I'm just glad that I'm uh, semi-retired now, and um, I can see the system for what it is, and I just go and do my bit and go home. I don't want to get heavily involved physically or emotionally into it. I've given so much to the NHS over the last 20 years and look where it got me. <laughs> you know, a nice bed on a cardiac ward. Um, so I think uh, we just have to sort of step back, do what we can do reasonably mm. that's not going to affect us emotionally. It's not going to burn us out. And um, just hope, hope and pray for the best. I think that detachment is... It's quite, it's quite important Absolutely. To, to, to actually detach yourself from this NHS entity and it's quite empowering actually mm. you notice it a lot in the hospitals now um, even the small things I think make a very very big difference in terms of the privatisation of it so for example just the, the bins being emptied are done by private companies mm-hmm. the sharps bins being taken away and all that yeah. and before it used to have people <clears throat> with NHS branded clothing um, they they were a member of the NHS and it felt like one big mm. institution mm. that was working together towards one goal now you have scrubs made by a company that get washed by another company you have like say that the uh, waste management side of things that gets brought in by another company the food is brought in by a different catering company and these are all small things that might not be related directly to Mm. actual healthcare itself the actual medicine side of things but they all contribute in a small way um, to adding more costs and more um, inefficiencies yeah and that's my issue yeah Mm. inefficiencies that result Mm. yeah but i mean look at carillion just a year ago massive cleaning contract they just went bust and said sorry. Yeah. Screw your pension. Screw your this. Screw Did they this. say sorry? Uh, well, I missed that. sarcastically, <laughs> yes. Sorry, we can't help you. Your pension is lost. Your we spent it. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So, and PFI, this mm. grand scheme where private companies will build your spanking your Bart's Healthcare. Mm. The cost of that was one point two billion, but they'll be spending seven point one by the time, and they're still financing hundred million a year. 
in interest payments alone. 100 mm. million in the mm. in Tower Hamlets in East London. Mm. Imagine what that could do. Well, I mean, coming back a little bit, let's go back to when these agreements were made. I mean, I'm not sure when that was done. Our local trust, they, they did a PFI arrangement in the early noughties, and they agreed an interest rate of 11.1%. Now, I know interest rates were a lot higher than they were, but they were not 11.1%. Mm. And anyone who agreed to that really ought to be slapped down and <laughs> sacked and never heard from again. Um, it's just outrageous, those kind of decisions. Because similarly, they're paying about 30 million a month in interest alone. Mm. And so they've got to generate 30 million a month before they can even pay their staff. Exactly, yeah. Wow, that's a tough job to bake. Mm. So I'm just glad I'm detached from that and certainly glad that I was not part of that decision. Is it fair to say that ultimately all, all of these problems could be solved with more funding, mm. technically? given that that mm. seems to be sort of the driving force of it. Every, everything seems to stem back from this. And if there was enough funding, then things wouldn't need to go out to bidding wars. And Well, part of me wonders if they were actually set up to fail like this. Yeah, And then sure. they will fail, and then yeah. someone will buy them for like, um, you know, 10 cents on the yeah. dollar, mm. um, and, uh, and then make a go of it. Yeah, yeah. It does feel that in many ways, actually. Even looked at patient scans and they, they've got things like Virgin Healthcare on the top of oh, them already, <laughs> already, you know, and that was that was even a while ago. Gosh. And it's just you're thinking, you know, before they used to have the NHS logo on the mm. top of that. And What uh, do patients say? Or do they comment thing about is, these things? I think <laughs> patients tend to just as long as as long as something will get done, if they need yeah. a scan that gets done, they're happy. Yeah. They don't yeah. care yeah. as long as um, as long as they're treated as an NHS as an NHS patient, and that's mm. what they were expecting. So you know the cost is covered with their national insurance, which yeah. they've been paying. And um, that, you know, I mean, are we just too not you know nostalgic about this? No, some patients do have take exception <coughs> to it, um, and they get quite. No, as in us as doctors, that we're getting a bit too carried away with this nostalgia. Oh, it's the NHS, and it must be together. It must be this, and it. Well, let's go back to the eighties and nineties. The NHS was. Yeah, not great then either you know we had doctors collapsing and dying at work um you know a lot of junior doctors nowadays complain about having working 48 hours a week when i started i was doing 48 hours on a weekend on call sometimes that was normal and we had no paid breaks um and if you died well you'll you'll get up in (laughs) in a couple of hours time Otherwise, you're in trouble. You can't die on the him. job. Yeah, he doesn't get up, it. put the blanket over his head. Uh, so. <laughs> I, I would definitely say that yeah, going, you know, listening to stories about how how the NHS was and or how doctor life was, it was definitely the hours were were atrocious. Yeah. From the racism was definitely there. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay, Back I, I, in I, those days, when I was applying <laughs> to medical school, one of my friends did turn to me when I was eight, 17, 18. He said, "You know, medicine, medical." doctors that's got they've got the highest rate of divorce alcoholism and suicide i said i didn't know that and it didn't stop me from applying <laughs> not much has changed you know yeah. let's, mm. let's not as i said to you earlier sahil let's not pretend any of these problems are new yeah. these have been going on for a long time from uh, we become sensitive <laughs> we become wusses <laughs> i feel i wouldn't be doing the, the part if i didn't try and defend uh my generation of things in terms of yes mate, you're of, part of us mate what are you talking well, about things were definitely hours and things were a lot harder yeah. back then but one thing I will say is it sounds like it was a lot more fun um, we had a ton of fun yeah no uh, doubt about and it. I think 
nowadays the 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 hours might be different but i think the stresses are a lot different no i mean it's just so not complicated i mean i remember doing you know ophthalmology i think there was only about 10 or 12 different conditions you can treat it it just wasn't so complicated yeah. now it's just so complicated you know the the, the whole mechanism of healthcare yeah. it's so complicated now yeah. and you if you were a registrar you could just say to your junior back then yeah, piss off. Get on with it. Now it's like you've yeah. got to you you got to be very politically correct. Now consultants are in all the time. They're you know uh, registrars always there on the floor. There, it's it's changed, and the the time that you're in the hospital is very different. The stress of the the paperwork side of things, the just the logistics of it, trying to all the scans and things like that, it's, it's changed. It mm. wasn't before you could walk down the corridor and find your Radiographer and be like, do you mind just popping to the wall doing a doing yeah. a quick quick echo? Now to and they were cool about it. Yeah, they're like, yeah, no problem. Yeah, yeah whereas now and they knew your name and you knew yeah. their name. You'd have a you doing that. But now, how can you solve this, Paul? I know it's a big question. I mean, you you mentioned funding. You think funding would? I, I, I don't think funding will change that to yeah. some extent. I think I think that's just uh, going back to what we were saying earlier. The the, the protocol driven. It's like. Oh, you know, heaven forbid if you do a scan without the request form being there, you know, yeah. just because it was word of mouth or, mm. and and it's just not going to happen, you know. Yeah, back uh, in my day, we, we didn't have any request form, just pick up the phone, oh yeah, do it, do that, and yeah. that's it. Um, I mean, yeah. or, or trying good. to just send off bloods now, it's just, yeah, they try to make it simple with the computer system and they print out your stickers and your labels, and but the whole process... You know, because that's assuming you can actually log in. That's assuming that there's yeah. actually internet working. This is, and there's all these little variables that Apparently actually took forty-one you know, minutes to log, you know, log into. Yeah, the with NHS. all your usernames, password. It's <laughs> it's ridiculous. Forty-one yeah. minutes for one yeah. uh, trust. Well, they're on dial-up internet. <laughs> no, it's just purely from the, the different number of systems. Right. So there's yeah. um, so you have a different system for X-ray that requires a username, password. Different one for looking at blood results. That's oh a different God. one. One to log into the actual computer itself. Um, another one if you've got to look at X-rays from a, to a, from a different. No wonder you're podcasting now, Paul. Yeah, it's, it's true. It's, how, many, how many passwords on your podcast? <laughs> just the one. Yeah, just the one. <laughs> <laughs> it's, you know, but it, it's definitely. Um, makes your life very very hard it makes it a lot less enjoyable um but when when there's days where you don't have to deal with all of those things and and you can just do the basic fundamental care that you can do in say an A&E resource bay where which is the one time I will say all of that seems to go out the window all the admin stuff all the bureaucracy Mm. and it's it's sad because it's clearly in a very serious situation you've got someone that is is dying in front of you but what is nice is just how, when you are dealt with something like that, all of that just gets ignored, and yeah. it's just put whatever you can up, do this, forget, you know, all the. I think maybe that's why I loved working in Amy so long. Mm. I did Amy for three years, and um, it was great because as a result of that, you knew everybody, yeah, and everybody knew you, and there was only one criteria: if you give good referrals and you, yeah. you know, care about patients, mm. then they will. They're more likely to listen to you next time. Yeah. And so I knew everybody in the hospital, and they all knew me. It was just absolutely yeah. brilliant. Mess parties. Oh, the shot is getting my beer. And, well, I yeah. don't drink now, just to be clear. But, um, yeah, things would get done, mm. without a doubt. It's common sense medicine. Yeah. It's, the last, it's one of the few places where you can actually practice common sense medicine mm-hmm. in, in a good unit, you know, one that isn't um, becoming more triage-based, which, unfortunately, 
Uh, I think they started triage, didn't they? <laughs> yeah, they, they did. It's all their fault. It's, it's, um, and, and sadly, again, that's, that's the result of the work pressures. So patient comes in and you're saying, okay, they're surgical, they're medical, they're home, they're for, you know, uh, for admission. They're malingerers. Yeah, it, it, it's, it's true. And, and it's, it's a shame that sometimes they don't, they don't have the time to do everything there, there, fix up the patient and then send them on their way or, or send them to the ward solved as it were or, mm. or on that on that right path you know and that's where you get the stories of waiting for so long to get get treated and mm. i think that's where things like that stem from as well but um that's not all the time of course so and, would you say because there's a comment i've heard from surgeons that trainees are less well equipped or less capable because they're spending less time in the ward they're not having that 24-hour take or they're not being able to follow up their patients or the consultant's always there to just sort out a difficult problem. Are trainees less capable now in actually yeah, I, doing I, the medical job? I think if if something's not part of the, a pathway, mm. um, which goes back to sort of the, the med school teaching you loads of communication skills versus actual mm. practical skills um, or making allowing you, giving you the freedom to use your use your head, think a bit laterally, Think outside the box and just be like, okay, let's let's just get this this done. Doesn't matter, it works. Crack on. Um, so yeah, I do think you know if you get a bog standard textbook example of say a heart attack, yeah, I, I guarantee they'll be treated well. Mm. But it's it's the variables yeah. that that can throw people. And um, yeah, it just goes back to that protocol driven side of things, and also the fear of doing something that doing is, something wrong or is, different is wrong yeah, and, yeah. and so whereas before or even one th- thing i will say when i was say in in northern ireland where it was a lot more it felt like a bit more old school the the training side of things in surgery so someone came in with you know big big injury you're looking you're okay stitch them up in a and e come back next day check it and and you can't do that now mm. or here to mm. some extent because you'd be like you did what you, you, know, you yeah. can't send someone someone home with that but that was just that was the norm mm. and I found that it's actually the younger doctors uh, and the younger consultants who are you did one mm. whereas the more senior doctors were like, yeah good on you yeah, yeah. it's, it's, it's yeah. true um, yeah, I, I got sort of told off when I was an F1 uh, I, there was no there was no other doctors on the on the ward they're all in theatre mm. and uh, and um, Beds needed to be freed up. So there I was as an F1. Um, patients were coming in and I would just treat them for they and I, I sent them home. And so I was discharging patients, which I didn't know at the time. So I was, this was quite, I was quite Gosh, brand new. <laughs> uh, I, I was brand new. I didn't know that this was wrong. And so when when my registrar found out that I'd been sending patients home, he was absolutely horrified. And I told the consultant who was quite senior, I said, um, so-and-so came in with this this and this I've sent them home them home so oh, well see your GP he was very grateful and he said yeah, well done you did a did a good job and mm. and that was the difference between like you say someone that with the experience and yeah I, I did it out of ignorance but mm. you know it was um, it was the difference in reaction was, was extraordinary mm. um, so lesson mm. learned anyway so, you, know. <laughs> you know which is why the um, the clinical experience of physicians mm. in the eastern countries. I remember when I went to Iraq and I was there for three years. I learned yeah. so much there. Yeah, yeah, of course. Because see, I had to learn. You see you know, everything. And was, and then, you see everything. You yeah. do everything, and you were there mm. to treat as many people as possible as safely as possible. Yeah. And you just got good at it because mm. you had to get good at it. 
Yeah. Otherwise, you wouldn't be alive. Mm. Um, uh, it's just like having this free-form conversation. You know, yeah. it's okay. We're making a lot of mistakes here and so on, but you know, we are getting results. We are getting used to it. We're innovating. We're going with the flow. And I think there should be more of that flow thing rather than piecemeal and tick boxing yeah. and yeah and that's unlikely to change mm. i mean my dad was a gp he he tells me the story of going to a patient with cardiac arrest took out adrenaline boom straight into the wow. myocardium Pulp you know. fiction stuff. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> i mean that doesn't happen nowadays obviously you call a blue light ambulance but whenever that was in the 80s or whenever he went out on and our gps used to do their own home visits totally different yeah but story then, then. and that's did he did the ambulance still come he just yes send him back to work <laughs> <laughs> Of course, you know, in the late 80s, 90s, when GPs... But even that's quite fragmented. Instead of you dealing with it, it's like ambulance. But some things need to be seen in the hospital. Yeah. You know, just leave them. Okay, fine. Well, you know, you've just had a bit of adrenaline. You'll be fine now. Yeah. <laughs> it's true. Yeah. Cool. We well, can't deal with everything, then. Mm. We can't. But are we expected to? But at least we should know about it. Mm. Kind of start it off and then... Rather, no, no, that's not my thing anymore. That's so you mean me. GPs or doctors generally? I think GP is the, almost like the buck sort of stops with a GP. Mm. And we have to say, yeah. well, we can't deal with everything. Yeah. But the expectations are so high upon us. Yeah. yeah. Um, <clears throat> and uh, set by organisations that are increasingly non-clinical, like mm. CQC and NHS England. Yeah. Um, you know, like a while ago, we, we're not contractually obliged to provide emergency services, emergency care, as NHS GPs, and then CQC come in and say, actually, your GP must be your port, first port of call. What? 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 On, on what basis? Wherever you come, no, can't argue with us, we're CQC. Right, okay, so... Can you legally argue with them? Or, I mean, do, do, no, do, they, do they flog have... you. <laughs> <laughs> do they have a kind of... No, they don't of... flog you. Um, in my legal. experience, they don't... I, I found, generally speaking, that they didn't seem to listen very much to us. And my issue with them was <clears throat> that they came and did an assessment of our practice and um, published a report based on their assessment, which they sent to the press before they even sent to us. And they wrote down eight shortcomings, of which seven we'd already addressed before it had got to the press. And the eighth one was due to be addressed that weekend. So it painted our organisation in a really bad light, which ultimately was false at the time of publication. And what they don't think about here is, how is this actually going to affect our GP practice? A mm. patient's going to start to leave. Mm. Our employee's going to start to feel disheartened. like, we work so bloody hard and this is what we get. Forget it, I'm off. This is going to actually affect the organisation from, from a financial perspective. Um, because, you know, if, if patients start to leave, I mean, that, that, patients are the lifeblood of a general practice. Mm. So, you know, who, who's actually thought this through? Why couldn't we actually sit down and have an intelligent conversation and say, OK, so we found these things. Let's talk about them and let's talk about your plan to address them. Because nobody's perfect. You know, we're all human. All right. We're going to go in circles here. Um, and, and we'll, you know, talk about how you're going to... Instead, it was just so aggressive and... Um, just unwilling to go outside their specific directive. And, and that's what I found really, really mm. frustrating about engaging with them. It's because you deal with robots, mm. basically. And go, yeah. I think it goes back to the 
uh, well, they haven't done this, this, this. It doesn't doesn't well, matter that they're taking care of it. Yeah. Let's be no self-respecting doctor works for CQC. Um, and yeah, I've said it. Yeah, who's going to argue? <laughs> Anyone? No, good. Uh, they don't. And uh, you know, ultimately, they, they just they, they have a clear agenda, and uh, just a really seem to be a deeply unpleasant bunch of people. What's their agenda? I think it's very similar to the agenda that we spoke about earlier. It's all part of a bigger picture. Mm-hmm. Um, going back to um, Dr. Kailash Chan's uh, excellent piece that he wrote for Pulse last year. Which mm. is? Have we not seen it? <gasps> don't well, you, don't just you follow me on Twitter? The, just in case the people... So we'll, 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 we'll leave links below to all of this interesting <laughs> stuff. <Yeah. laughs> so dismantling of... of well, look, you know, we, we some people will call this conspiracy theories. Yeah. I'm just looking thing at things from the you past. You like facts, I know. I like facts. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, if we extrapolate where we were, where we are, and then where we're going as a result, yeah. Yeah. that's what I'm looking at. Unless there's massive intervention at some point to change the direction of where things are going, then, yeah, it's it's all going to it's all gonna fold. Fall house, apart. House of cards. Mm-hmm. So, um, so on that bright note, yeah, yeah, we're going to wrap up this imperfect <laughs> yeah. uh, podcast video, however you want to call it. Um, how? Yes. Well, yes, just I, I don't want to leave on a negative note. So no, no. I, think, I mean, I was going to say the most like important that. thing there I want to say is there's probably never been a more important time for anyone listening or anyone in this room to look after our own health in the yeah. best ways mm. that we possibly can. Take care of ourselves physically, mentally, emotionally, socially and do what we can to avoid prevent illness with all the uncertainty and all the disillusioned clinical staff who are highly experienced and not being listened to and are leaving in droves that's really i think is what's going to save what's going to save healthcare right now how we take care of ourselves thank you for answering that question what i was going to say is how we're going to wrap up this <laughs> <laughs> imperfect podcast episode video if if each one of us can Give us a um, a final wrap up, but Shan's already done his one. Yeah, I think Bastard. that was a nice sentence. I'm just going to leave here and look at your shoes. Now. <laughs> so I love my shoes actually. Cool. That's the best thing about today is wearing these shoes. <laughs> bastard. <laughs> my, my bastard is bastard. So I think the thing that we need to remember is all of us as doctors, as physicians, ultimately our main aim our main goal is the well-being health and wellness of our patients i think that we all enter medicine for that reason we didn't enter it to gain notoriety we didn't enter it to gain loads and loads of financial uh benefit although we're paid well let's not beat about the bush um but i think if we remember that as the underlying goal of why we entered this healthcare service whether we work in the nhs whether we work privately whether we uh, work part-time, full-time. I do all of these things um, and sometimes I have conflict, internal conflict about why do I do some private medicine when I'm inherently against privatisation of the NHS. But I think if we remember that we are here for the well-being of our patients and keep that at our centre and our core, then I don't think we can go wrong. Cool. Um, Shan's already done his piece. I would say, yes, we, we all look after our patients and we do it well and my final piece would be just to make sure that we don't forget to look after each other mm-hmm. and I think anyone listening or the powers that be that are in a position to look after 
juniors or in many cases seniors yes, too old biddies like like me <laughs> you know, they don't lose lose sight of that and just to realize that as we we're saying we are all human and we do suffer the same problems that our patients suffer from yeah and so we mustn't forget that just to recognize that in ourselves and also our colleagues too and seek help when needed and, and Shan, you wanted to add something? Oh, I, I love that, Paul. That's fantastic. I think if, if the powers of be listing, it's really about how we can all come together, look out, look after ourselves, look after each other, and not just our fellow professionals, but uh, our populations as well. And I'd like to add, you know, please let us enjoy ourselves. Yeah. You know, at work and outside. Mm. Yes. Yeah, you know, whether so it means... Bloody serious. Yeah, exactly. You know, let stop us enjoy ourselves. And posting those Facebook videos. <laughs> just let us post it, yeah. Yes. Let us swear and let us get our juices out and have some fun. Thank you so much, Paul. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much, Shan. Pleasure. Thank you, Sahil. Thank, thank you. you for watching. Um, if you've got this far, you're fucking crazy. <laughs> <laughs> See you guys. Have a good time. Bye, everyone. Thanks for listening to this installment of the Surgical Spirit podcast. For all the latest in the world of Surgical Spirit, don't forget to follow on Twitter at The Third Eye Doc and catch me on Facebook at the page The Third Eye Doctor. You can visit the website at www.thethirdeyedoctor.co.uk. For more information on the work that I do, and please send us feedback and questions and suggestions for the podcast. It's always a pleasure to hear from you. I've been Dr. Haider Al-Hakim, and I'll see you next time.